Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Well, this week we have another lesser-known case from Victoria, Australia. One where there is no true justice, but a likely killer is revealed. Now, references tonight are from The Age, and I've got most of this from a coroner's report. Okay, so we go back 40 years to Tottenham in Victoria, Australia for this case. Now, Tottenham is about 10 kilometres west of Melbourne CBD. Okay, so it's the 1st of November, 1980. It's about midday. Ruth Gillespie and Beth Young, they're driving along a dirt track road known as a racecourse road, Williamston. Now, as they cross over the Corroyte Creek Ford, they notice what appeared to be a store mannequin lying in some grass on top of some rocks and which were in, in the water of the creek. Now, Miss Gillespie stopped the car and had a closer look before realising... It was a woman's body, clearly dead. They immediately drove to the Altona North Police Station where they reported what they'd seen. Now, if you look on Google Maps, the road crosses Corroyte Creek, but it's not a bridge, it's a ford, which is more like a very low concrete drive that still lets water flow over it when it's required. So you can easily see this rock where Barbara's body was located. Police from Altona North immediately attended and at 1.17pm arrived at the southern end of Racecourse Road and drove along the concrete ford where the body of Barbara Dawson was located. Lying in the creek some two and a half metres north of the concrete ford and partially hidden behind some reeds. Barbara's body was naked except the head was covered with a dark green plastic bag Around the neck was a green cord which extended down towards the legs. The feet and ankles were also covered with a dark green plastic bag and the body was partly submerged in the water. Okay, so before we get into the cause of death, we need to rewind a bit. Barbara Ellen Dawson was born at Wyala, South Australia on the 11th of July 1960 the second daughter and third child to the marriage of Colin and Helen Nader. Her mum would divorce and meet Peter Dawson. Now, Peter was married to a Patricia Dawson, who mysteriously disappeared on April the 11th, 1972, from the family home in Ingle Farm, South Australia. Just a couple of weeks later, Helen, Barbara's mum, moves in with her five kids to the Ingle Farm premises with Peter Dawson and his two kids. Now, they would end up having another kid together in 1974 and marry in 1979. Now, between 1972 and 1978, they moved several times between Victoria, South Australia and Western Australia. Now, do you get some eerie sense of deja vu when you hear the name Dawson with a missing wife, then another woman moves in shortly after? We'll get into that a bit more later. Now, Barbara was described as having a minimal number of friends and a limited social circle. Her brother Jeffrey said, 
I don't recall ever meeting any of her friends, and I don't think she had many friends at all other than the people she's working with. Barbara was never allowed to go out and can't even recall her going out to see a movie or to a nightclub. Now, this is not going out or actually not being allowed to go out. Now, this not going out or actually not being allowed to go out is explained in more detail by her sister, Susan. She details the amount and type of control her parents had over the kids that still lived in the house. Now, Susan said... Helen and Dad controlled us kids by fear and intimidation. They liked to have complete control over where and what we kids did, what time we went to or left from anywhere, who we saw and there and so on. For instance, I had to be home from school by 4pm. If I wasn't, there'd be hell to pay. By this, I mean that Helen would go ballistic yelling at me. She had a nasty, sharp tongue. When we were little... I remember Dad waking us up to hit us for some wrongdoing that we'd done during the day and Helen had subsequently told him about. When she hit you, she didn't care where, usually on the face. She'd hit us with a wooden spoon and strap too. He used to use his hands and may have used this strap. I can't remember, but he hit us across the legs mainly and the bum. If anyone was allowed out, it was Darren, because he'd do the hell whatever he liked. The rest of us weren't allowed out. No birthday parties or going to friends' houses or anything. We were pretty much isolated. Susan also noted that they were very protective of her, and they were spinning out about the fact that Barbara wanted to go out with anyone at all. Full stop. Not long before she was murdered, she went to a disco with someone. I think it was someone from work, and I know Dad and Helen stayed up and waited for her to come back through the door. It was only once, and after that, she didn't do it again. They gave her such a hard time about it. Susan also commented in respect of Barbara, and she said, I have no idea if she was sexually active, but openly sexually active, definitely not. She didn't have a boyfriend that I knew of, I never met any of Barb's friends, if she had any, and I have no idea who she would have confided in if she had felt the need to. She had workmates. And this is pretty much what all her siblings said of their family life. Parents that were in total control and no one was allowed to go anywhere much at all. Barbara would end up spending her home time just reading books or watching telly. Barbara did have a job though. She worked at G.J. Coles in Footscray, not far from home, and it was really her only opportunity to meet with others and socialise at all, just with her workmates. But Barbara did have a romantic interest in a boy at work, Joe Sidari. Now, this would eventually cause a lot of tension and arguments in the Dawson household. So, this is a strictly controlled family. The kids aren't allowed friends over or allowed to go out. Barb's does have a job, but is still not allowed a normal social life. And lo and behold, if she would want to go out with a foreigner. And this control isn't just yelling and screaming at the kids. It's enforced with wooden spoons to the face and being whipped with a strap. Okay, so it's in the morning of Wednesday, the 29th of October, 1980. Barbara is sleeping at the family's 56 Guello Street Tottenham house. She's supposed to go to work in the morning, 
but she's going to sleep in and take a sickie. Now, a sickie for our American listeners is a sick day. Now, Helen, Barb's mum, had to be at work at 7am and goes in to see Barbara to get her up. Now, Barb says to her, Mum, I'm going with Rod. I don't have to go so early. Now, Rod is the next door neighbour boy. Helen is then driven to work by Peter Dawson, her hubby, and Barb's stepdad. He works as a security officer and had just come home from a graveyard shift. Now, Jeffrey, Barb's brother, gets up and goes to school, leaving the house at around 8am. David, her other brother, sees Barbara dressed at 7.30am and she asks him to tell Lynn, who works in the supermarket cash office, and a Mr Simpson, the manager of Coles, that she won't be going into work because she's got an appointment with her doctor. Now, David tells Joe Sidari about it at 8am, he works at Coles, that Barb's was going to the doctors and that she wouldn't be in for the day. Susan, Barb's sister, also leaves the house to go to school. So the only people left in the house are Barb's and her stepdad, Peter, and he's the last person to see her alive. Now, this is where things get really suspicious. Christine Cole a phonogram operator employed by Telecom Australia said that on Wednesday, October the 29th, she was working at Central Telegraph office and that after I returned from lunch, after 12 midday, I received a request by phone for a telegram to be sent to Mr and Mrs Dawson at 56 Guello Street, Tottenham. Now the message was, decided to be on my own for a while, let you know where I am later, and signed Babs. Christine said, though, that the caller was male, and he sounded to her as though he was aged between 35 and 50 years. And she went on to say that after I'd received the message, I forwarded it for dispatch through the usual channels. I also recall that the caller appeared to be in a hurry. He didn't want me to read it back to him, I did read it back to him and he hung up straight away. <laughs> I tried to say forwarded it, it, it forwarded it, it I can't say it forwarded it so many times. I just had to go with that one, the best one. Anyway, let's get back to this. So we got this weird telegram from supposed to be from uh, Barbara, but it's come from a bloke. Anyway. Roy Schmidt, supervisor in charge of the operations department, chief telegraph office, said that the telegram was addressed to Dawson, 56 Guello Street, Tottenham. This particular telegram was lodged by telephone from a public telephone box. I've got the telephone box number here, 689068M3. Now, that was situated in front of the Footscray Post Office. 201 Nicholson Street, Footscray, no Best Buy. The charge for the telegram was only 6 bucks 40 and was brought to account in the normal manner by the sender inserting 32 20-cent coins in the multi-coin receptacle. There you go. No QR codes back then. All right, so Barb's left home, but the telegram she sends to her family was dictated over the phone by a man and not her. Why not just leave a note on the fridge. Who is this man calling in this telegram? So the telegram is phoned in at about 1pm and Peter Dawson is home at around 1.30pm when it's delivered. Now it's 
only about a nine-minute drive from this payphone back to the house. Now, Peter goes to pick up Helen from work at around 2.25 p.m., and he tells her the news. Then they both drive to Barb's work at GJ Coles to ask if anyone's seen her, but no one has. When they return home, they call Barb's friends, not that she's got many, to see if she's with them, but no one's seen her. So Barb's is gone. There is this mysterious telegram, but that's not all. Peter and Helen Dawson don't report Barb's missing until the morning of the 1st of November. That's three days after this telegram was sent. Now, as we already know, it's later that day that Barb's body is found on the rock at Corroy Creek. But Barb's isn't identified until the 3rd of November by sister Julie Condello. Okay, so now, when Barb's body is found on the 1st of November, police were appealing for help to identify this body. Lynette Robinson, who worked at the office where Barb's worked, said that she was sitting in the lounge room with her mum and brother watching the nightly news, and as soon as the picture was shown, she was immediately recognised it as Barbara. So that was from the media press release. The police were wondering who the hell this body is. So they got a pretty good photo and her friend from work picks it up. Now, after recognising it as Barbara, she went straight to the phone and rang Barbara's home number. Now, Peter Dawson answered the phone and Lynn asked if Barbara was there and he replied, no, she's gone away on a holiday. Now, (laughs) wouldn't you take that phone call a little bit more seriously? I mean, your daughter is gone, left no contact details, and then a body is found that a work colleague recognises as your daughter. But you don't even think to contact police. And it will end up being Barbara's sister that goes to identify her body two days later. Now, I guess it would be strange unless you've got something to hide. On the 1st of November 1980, Dr. James Henry McNamara conducted a post-mortem examination on the body of Barbara Dawson. Now, Dr. McNamara made the following observations and findings. The body had a black bag around her head and upper portion of the chest and another black bag around the legs from the knees down. A piece of green cord was tied around just above the knees and continues on around the neck. The green cord was tied around the neck on the outside of the black bag. There was bruising over the left cheek and around the front of the neck. Below this was a three-inch cut evenly across the front of the neck, but irregular in nature on the right. On exposing the laceration to the neck, the main damage appeared to be directly in the midline and had almost completely severed the trachea. The dissection of the neck revealed minimal hemorrhage, When commencing the dissection, but after dissecting behind the trachea, the hemorrhage was particularly well marked. The laceration had severed the normal structures under the skin and had penetrated into the thyroid gland. There was a deep cut in the right-hand side of the trachea. The trachea was partly severed also, to a lesser degree, in the left-hand side. Although it was here on the left-hand side, the continuity of the trachea was still observable. The major vessels of the neck, other than the external jugular vein, were intact. The external jugular vein on the left had been severed. 
The cartoid and internal jugular were normal. Now, vaginal and rectal smears were taken. The vaginal swab would contain semen. Remember, this is 1980. You're not going to get any DNA analysis in Australia, especially for use as evidence, until 1989. The uterus was normal size and appearance and showed no evidence of any pregnancy and the ovaries were normal. The external examination showed no interference with the urogenitory system. Analysis of a post-mortem blood sample didn't identify any alcohol content and no common drugs, poisons or illicit drugs were detected in the organs. Dr. McNamara formulated the cause of death as hemorrhage from lacerated throat. Okay, so Barbara had a throat cut and a body dumped in the creek not far from where she lived, naked with some green plastic bags and rope, I guess trying to conceal the body, either for transport or to help hide a body sometime after she was dumped. Now, as we all know in true crime, police will look for who's seen the victim last, who discovers the body, and people close to them. In a statement given on the 25th of November 1980, so this is just over three weeks after Barbara's body is found, Peter Dawson says that, On Tuesday, the 28th of October 1980, I started work at 10.30pm at 27 Gate, South Wharf. I finished work at approximately 6.30am on the Wednesday morning. I then drove home, arriving at about 10 to 7. When I arrived home, Helen, whom I'll call Sal, was up and ready for work. I then drove Sal to work to the Maidstone Private Hospital, where she's a nurse. I then returned home at approximately 10 past 7. On this day, David, Susan and Geoffrey were up starting breakfast. I got Darren out of bed and prepared all the children for school. At this stage, I hadn't sighted Barbara. Sometime between 7 and 7.30am, I heard Barbara call for David. David went into the hallway. I came from the kitchen to the hallway to see what was going on. I asked Barbara what was happening and she told me that she was going to the doctor's. Then I went into the bedroom and returned to the kitchen. While I was in the hallway, I heard Barbara tell David that Rod, the next door neighbour, would take David to work. The next thing I recall happening was that David came and said goodbye and Susan left to go to school just after this. This was about 20 to 8. A short time after Susan left, Barbara came and sat in the lounge. Then Geoffrey left to go to school. Barbara was still in the lounge. I asked her when she was going to the doctor's and she said shortly or something like that. She was watching cartoons on the telly. Between 8.45am and 9am, Darren left to go to school. After this, I went to the toilet, then went to bed. When I went to bed, Barbara was still sitting in the lounge room. She was wearing her work clothes. I think she was wearing brown trousers and her roll-neck skivvy. Before going to bed, I asked her what time she was going to the doctor's and she just told me, later. At about 10am that morning, I woke up and decided to drive around to the shops to buy some things. When I got up, I didn't notice whether Barbara was home or not. I didn't see her, but I didn't look for her either. After coming home, I lay down on the bed, but didn't go to sleep. At about half past one in the afternoon, there was a knock at the door, and when I answered it, I saw that it was the telegram boy. He delivered to me the telegram, which read, Decided to be on my own for a while. Let you know where I am later. Babs. 
The telegram was addressed to a Mr. and Mrs. Dawson, 56 Grello Street, Tottenham. Now, when I read it, I went to see if Barbara was in her bedroom, but she wasn't. I looked in her drawers, and it was obvious her clothing was gone. I was quite shocked at this. I then went and showed Sal at her work the telegram. Okay, so that's Peter Dawson, who's Barbara's stepfather's version of events. But there's no detail in the coroner's report to indicate that the police checked out Peter's claims of where he was during the morning of the 29th. But let's just wind back a few days to statements made by Barbara's friends and family and look at a bank withdrawal she made on the 27th of October. We'll look at that bank withdrawal first. Karen Doolan, bank teller at the Footscray Bank of the ANZ Bank, said that at about 1pm on Monday afternoon, the 27th of October, I was working as a teller at my place of employment. A female approached me and passed a bank book with a withdrawal slip. She looked and smiled at me as she did this. The account was in the name of Barbara Ellen Dawson of 56 Guello Street, Tottenham. The withdrawal slip was for $1,400. I observed that there was $1,586.65 in her bank book account. I checked the signature and also the computer account. Now, all appeared correct. I had the account supervisor, Mr. Jack Carroll, check it and initial it. I then gave Miss Dawson $1,400 in $50 notes. She then left the bank. Okay, so... (laughs) Back in 1980, I can tell you, 1400 is a lot of cash to withdraw, especially if you're only leaving about $186 left in your account. In fact, that amount of money would be worth more than $6,500 today. That's a lot of money. Now, especially for someone who doesn't go out, lives at home, that sort of money would indicate She was thinking of leaving home and either travelling or going a long way away, which would make sense with the strict conditions she had to abide by in her domestic situation. See, if you were just going to move into a flat down the road, you wouldn't need that much money in one hit. Now, back in 1980, the key card, the ATM card, whatever you call it, was only just being introduced in Australia. If you wanted to go somewhere that didn't have your bank details, it involved a bit of planning to have your details faxed through to the bank if you wanted to do a transaction. That's why I think she was leaving town. But there's this one comment from her workmate. Now, Anna Tedesco, a work colleague at GJ Coles, said she had a conversation with Barbara on Monday the 27th of October that... Barb told me that she was going to the bank that day to get some money so she could buy a birthday present for her mother. Later the same day, she told me that she'd been to the bank and had withdrawn the money. She didn't say how much. She asked me what I thought I should get for her mum. Now, Barb said because she didn't want anyone apart from her and her dad to know anything about the present. Later, Barb told me that she was going to have a day off on the Wednesday to go with her dad to buy the present for her mum. So, here she indicates she wants to buy a present for her mum and will go with her dad to buy it. Now, that sort of money is going to get you a pretty good, say, a second-hand car. And on the Wednesday, there's no indication that she planned to go anywhere with her dad. 
Anyway, let's talk about what Joe Sidari, her workmate and love interest, had to say about the events before Barbara was murdered. Now, Joe said that on Tuesday, the 21st of October, I asked Barbara if she'd meet me after work on the next night, on the Wednesday, for a chat. I asked her this because I'd heard that she was wondering why I hadn't asked her out. I had a few things on my mind and I thought it would be good to have a talk with her. I did like her and in fact planned to take her out sometime. When I asked to meet her the next night, the Wednesday, she agreed to it. The next night, Wednesday night, I saw Barbara at 10 to 6 in the shop. I went upstairs to get something and when I went back downstairs, she'd gone. I thought that this was strange. And after this, I went home. The next day at work, the Thursday, I saw Barbara at work. When she saw me, she ignored me. Later on, I asked her what had happened last night and she told me that she'd had an argument with her father about me. It was because he didn't like Italians. She'd been crying because her eyes were all red and puffed up. She was very upset. She told me that she'd explain everything later. Then I asked her if she'd have lunch with me and she agreed. That afternoon, we went and had lunch in my car, which was parked across the road in the car park. She told me about the argument she had with her father about Italians and that her father wanted two weeks to see how I treated her. And I don't know how he planned that. After this, I asked Barbara to accompany me to a 21st birthday party that was to be held on the 8th of November at a friend's place in Werribee South. She said she'd come if her father would let her go. After this, we both went back to work. Now, Joe said that he saw Barbara on both Monday the 27th and Tuesday the 28th of October at work as usual, with nothing out of the ordinary, noting that Tuesday I saw Barb's. She was in a good mood. She was full of smiles. Since I knew Barb's, I never took her out. The only times we've ever been alone was on the Saturday morning that I picked her up to drive her to work and on the Thursday that we sat in the car and talked. I've never even held hands or kissed Barb's. Now, Barbara seemed to be very upset about this issue of having a crush on Joe, but her parents being totally against it. Now, statements from her siblings back this up, with them basically saying she was very disappointed, crying, and seemed distraught by the situation she was in, with yelling and screaming going on between her and her parents. In respect of this, Peter and Helen... Her parents said there was never any conflict in the household or arguments in the days before Barbara's murders, which is what you would say if you were trying to hide something, wouldn't you? Now, there's another interesting conversation Barbara had with another workmate, Joseph Faccioli, just days before she was murdered. Joseph Faccioli, trainee manager at GJ Coles Footscray, said in respect of these interactions with Barbara that Joe Sidari was pretty friendly with Barbara Dawson, the girl who got murdered. I also knew her, but only to talk to. I've known Barbara since I started working there. On Friday the 24th of October, I had a joke with Barb. It was in the afternoon. I asked her jokingly if she'd go out with me, and she told me she couldn't because she had too many problems. I asked her what the matter with her was, and she told me that she'd tell me the problem next Wednesday. She also told me she was going to go away for a while to sort something out, but she didn't tell me what her problem was. On the next Wednesday, she didn't turn up to work. So there's something about this Wednesday 
something that Barbara's got planned. Anyway, on the late afternoon or early evening of Tuesday the 28th of October, Barbara went over to a neighbour's house, James and Wilma McKnight. Now, Wilma said that it would have been somewhere between 5 and 6 p.m. I was sitting on the couch in the lounge room and Rodney, my youngest son, was sitting on a chair opposite. The back door was open and I heard Barbara come in and she yelled out, Hello, Willie. I looked towards the kitchen area and saw Barbara coming towards me in the lounge. Barbara stopped at the doorway and said, I've come in to tell you something, Willie. As Barbara came into the lounge, she saw Rodney on the other chair. Now, at this stage, Barbara said, I'll come over to see you later. Barbara then left and I never saw her alive again. Okay, so we, we really don't know what Barbara wanted to say to Wilma, but it was something that she didn't want Wilma's son to know. Another statement made to police by the neighbour was he heard voices from the Dawson house on the Wednesday, the Wednesday she goes missing. James McKnight, Wilma's hubby, he'd taken the day off work because he had a 3pm appointment to get his tax return done. Now he says, I recall being out in the backyard of my house during the morning. I was pottering in the backyard in the shed, which shares the laundry with the Dawsons between 9am and 1pm. Between these times, I could clearly hear voices coming from next door. The voices were definitely Peter and Barbara Dawson. The voices were not raised like they were angry. It just appeared to be normal conversation. I didn't try to listen to the conversation as there was nothing abnormal about it. I heard the voices several times, but not continuously, as I was in and out of the house, the yard and the shed. At around 1pm, about the time I left for my appointment, I could still hear Barbara and Peter's voices next door. So, I don't know, maybe his times are out a bit, as this telegram was called in at 1pm and delivered at 1.30pm. And I believe it's Peter Dawson, the father, who goes into town which is only nine minutes' drive away, to call this telegram in. Okay, so let's wrap up what happened before Barbara was murdered. There's a lot of indication that something was going to happen, possibly on the 28th of November, that's the Wednesday. She's withdrawn almost all her money from the bank. She alludes to telling people something on the Wednesday, and she was probably going to tell her neighbour something on the Tuesday, but didn't get a chance to. All right. In December 1981, a coroner's inquest is held with an open finding. Now, Barbara had been murdered, but it was unknown by who or where. And as the years go by, the case goes cold. But family members talk about it a bit over the years, and more details start to come out. Now, one conversation between Susan, Jeffrey, and Trevor, their Barbara's siblings, went, Trevor recalled that Peter Dawson had called him because his car had broken down. Now, this was near Cororoit Creek, where Barbara's body would be found the next day. Now, Peter asked Trevor to keep it between them and not to mention it to anyone. Trevor also said that he saw plastic bags and rope in Peter's car, which looked the same as that found on Barbara's body. Now, Trevor told Susan that he was told by Peter that he was down in the area looking for Barbara, which I thought was strange because I didn't know Barbara would ever go to that area. So why would Dad go down there to look for her? Now, in 1994, 
Jeffrey drove Trevor to the homicide squad to give a statement about what happened. But the, there's no record of this statement to be found, okay? So this is where you would think they would drag Peter Dawson in for an interview. But that wouldn't happen for another nine years in 2003. Peter Dawson, he is arrested, but just for questioning. The swabs that were taken from Barbara's body have been forensically tested for DNA evidence. Now, one swab had nothing, really. Another was a bit mouldy, they couldn't use it. But a third had partial DNA traces that didn't exclude Peter Dawson. And how did they get Peter Dawson's DNA, right, without him knowing? Well, on the 31st of January 2003, Jeffrey Dawson, the the brother, drove to his father's house at Bacchus Marsh and after watching him smoke a cigarette on the veranda at the back of the house and drop it, drop it into a coffee tin, he collected the cigarette butt that still had ash attached, placed it in a bag and later that day provided it to the homicide squad. Jeffrey Dawson gave evidence that my father was the only person home at the time and he was the only smoker in the house. Sneaky boy. Now, they use this sample to see if they should get a formal sample, which they do in August of 2003. Now, Peter says in the interview with police, answer me one thing. You came into my house tonight and you said my DNA matched, matched what was found on Barbara. I never touched her in my life. Now, later in the interview, he was informed that The DNA that was located on her vaginal swab obtained from Barbara has been analysed and compared the sample of DNA that you supplied on the 15th of August 2003 and you can't be eliminated as a contributor of the DNA found on the vaginal swab. What do you have to say about that? Now Dawson replied, I never touched her, never ever touched her sexually and that would have to be sexual. Now, you answer me a question. You just said that I can't be eliminated. What does that mean? That it's not definite? As the exchange continued with investigators, Dawson said in response, Right, well the next move's up to you, isn't it? Now Peter Dawson then repeated his prior assertion saying, Look, i got no more to say, really. You've told me that and, and I've... Look, that's a bit of a shock because I've never gone near Barbara sexually in my life. So from here, it looks like cops are trying to put it on him a bit to get a confession, knowing they still don't have enough evidence to charge him. And so we'll go back in time to Peter Dawson's first wife, Patricia Dawson. Peter and Patricia Dawson were married in the United Kingdom in 1964. In 1969, they migrated to Australia with their two young children and moved into Ingle Farm, South Australia. In March of 71, Peter Dawson sustained a work-related back injury that resulted in him attending the Chamwell Clinic, North Terrace, Adelaide, for treatment. It was there that he met Helen Nader and ended up forming a close relationship with her. In March 72, Peter Dawson and Helen Nader began looking for houses with a view of moving in together. On Peter Dawson's version of events, at about 11.30pm on the 11th of April 1972, he left home to travel into Adelaide to purchase the Advertiser newspaper. When he left the house, Patricia and the two children were asleep in their beds. 
Peter returned home at about 12.30am on 12th of April 72 and sat in the lounge room reading the newspaper. At about 2am he noticed that Patricia was missing from her bedroom. They hadn't been sleeping together for some weeks. On the 14th of April 72, Dawson reported Patricia's disappearance to police only after her brother Brian Fletcher and her father insisted. So she's been gone two days. Just over two weeks after Patricia's disappearance, on the 27th of April 72, Helen Nader and her children, Helen will be Helen Dawson, and her children move into Ingle Farm premises with Peter Dawson and his two kids. Now, Patricia Dawson hasn't been seen or heard of since the 11th of April 72. Family and friends at the time found this extremely strange as Patricia was described as a devoted mother who doted on her children. She was also very close to her parents who lived in nearby Marden. Now, Detective Sergeant Geoffrey Brown of South Australia Police conducted a review of the initial investigation into the 72 disappearance of Patricia Dawson in 2003 to 2005. Now, as a result, Peter Dawson was arrested and charged with the murder of Patricia Dawson on the 13th of December 2005. The matter remained before the Adelaide Magistrates Court until 31st of August 2006 when it was decided by the South Australian Director of Public Prosecutions that the matter would not be proceeded with because of insufficient evidence. Well, his previous wife goes missing and he moves in with his new love interest, Helen, Barbara's mum, into the marital home. But wait, that's not all. Did Helen Dawson know something about Patricia's disappearance or even Barbara's death? Jeffrey Dawson told of a number of heated interactions between Helen and Peter when Peter would threaten to leave, resulting in what Jeffrey described as Helen calling out to him in a smug way. That's fine, I'll call the police. Or I'll call the police and tell them everything resulting in Peter immediately withdrawing his threats. On both occasions, Jeffrey concluded that, I don't know what mum was referring to, but now suspect she may have been referring to my mother's disappearance or Barbara's death. Susan Dawson also said that, I would describe Dad and Helen's relationship as her having something over him. I remember various occasions after Barb was murdered where Helen would yell at Dad, I'll ring the police, you bastard. I'll tell them everything I know. It'd go quiet after that and they'd make up and it'd return to him being quiet and her running the house. If he'd had his bags packed ready to leave, he'd unpack and go back to how he'd been. This happened for years after Barbara's murder. Jeffrey Dawson also told of a conversation he had with Peter when he was about 18 or 19 years old and that, I was still living at home, but going out to the various nightclubs and going to the gym a lot. I was being rebellious at the time and was being told not to go out by mum and dad, but I continued to go out. I'd earlier been grounded by my father and was told that I wasn't allowed to go out socialising. I was ignoring this and continued to go out. When I was alone this day at the hospital, he said to me, If you don't listen to your mother, I will find this girl and kill her. I've done it before. When he said this, I felt a shiver up my back and believed that he was maybe talking about my mother or Barbara's death and that he'd done it before. Now, just before the latest inquest, 
Further DNA analysis was done, which suggested that Barbara had had sexual intercourse within 24 hours of her death. Now, improvements in DNA analysis has pointed to her stepfather, Peter Dawson, as having sexually assaulted her on the day of her death. DNA comparative analysis made it a 100 billion times more likely Peter Dawson was the contributor of the semen sample that was found on her vaginal swab. So, there was this other inquest into the death of Barbara Dawson in 2021. Now, I've used most of the content from today's episode from that inquest. Now, the findings are, having reinvestigated the death of Barbara Ellen Dawson and having held an inquest in relation to her death on the 30th of March 2021 at Melbourne, I make the following findings. That the identity of the deceased was Barbara Ellen Dawson, born 11th of July 1960. And that Barbara Ellen Dawson died on or between the 29th of October 1980 and 1st of November 1980 from hemorrhage from a lacerated throat. I again refer to and reiterate the principles and authorities that operate within coronial jurisdiction, bearing in mind that Barbara's death involved conduct of a criminal nature, weight must be given to the presumption of innocence and that any finding against any person that they caused or contributed to Barbara's death is of such a gravity that it demands clear, cognate and exact proof. On considering the totality of the evidence, forensic and circumstantial, I find on the balance of probabilities that Peter Dawson, Barbara's stepfather, caused her death. There you go. But Peter Dawson, he died on the 14th of May 2008, so he's never asked to answer for the disappearance of his first wife, Patricia, or for the murder of his stepdaughter, Barbara. So what's my opinion on what happened to Barbara Dawson? Well, Peter Dawson, I think, this is just my opinion, probably raped Barbara on the Wednesday morning. Now maybe she'd been, he'd been raping her for a while, I don't know. But the neighbour didn't hear any screaming that morning. He only heard normal talking. Now, Barbara didn't confide to anyone that her stepfather had been raping her, but maybe she was just too ashamed to tell anyone. Whether her mother knew, who knows? But she was a piece of work in herself, the way she would hit the kids across the face with a wooden spoon. So I think Barbara was going to leave town, that this was probably what she was going to tell people on that Wednesday, but she didn't get a chance. Peter found out about this, and he didn't want his dirty little secret to get out. He would have lost his power over Barbara once she left home. I think he was so enraged, he killed Barbara after raping her and then dumped her body down the creek. The fact that his first wife disappeared and he moved Barbara's mum into the house just weeks after indicates to me that he needed her gone, that's Patricia gone, so he just killed her. He was never found guilty of that crime just because there was not enough evidence to convict him but it does indicate he was held under a lot of suspicion by police that he did kill his wife, Patricia. I mean, they charged him. They just had to drop the charges. Now, it's it's funny because this Dawson thing so close to what Chris Dawson did to Lynn Dawson all those years ago. Now, Barbara, she withdrew so much money but kept a little bit in the bank. Now, to me, that means she was going to leave town and the fact she was so upset 
was because she would also be leaving her new love interest, which was Joe Sidari. Barbara, I feel, just couldn't live with her controlling parents any longer and wanted a new life. But she just didn't get that chance. Her life was stolen from her and she was unceremoniously dumped in a creek. Okay, so I'd like to thank my patrons, past and present, for keeping the lights on. And that story was given to me again by Jen, I think. Thanks, Jen. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, please check out patreon.com forward slash true crime on, just like Jen did. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. Or if you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me, True Crime Island. Free beer's always nice after dumpster diving in the cases like these. Just like Wanda Egan did the other day, John Kelly. Thank you so much, Boomfuggalunga. I've also got a promo at the end of this episode. It's it's a bi-weekly. I'm just going to... I'm tripping over myself so many times today. It's a bi-weekly podcast called Campus Killings. Now, Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Scholzberg, Woman in Crime and Direct Appeal podcast. In each episode, Megan and Amy dive into some of the most shocking and tragic murders to happen on school grounds and provide their analysis as both educators and trained criminologists. So listen at the end, right? But can I just ask you to take the time to share the podcast with your friends, even in groups on Facebook, whatever. The Island is one of the few truly independent true crime podcasts out there, and I do it commercial free for you all. Best of all, it's free charge to help the island out. Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can find everything you need, links, email me, whatever. It's Bathurst week this week, so let's go the Fords. Well, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. (laughs) Ireland. True Crime Island. True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Nuts. Fall is here and class is back in session. It's a busy time for students and faculty, and with a new school year comes new adventures, new experiences, and new goals to achieve. But as much promise and excitement as the fall semester brings, there can also be a dark side to it, one in which the unthinkable can happen. I'm Amy Slashberg. And I'm Megan Sachs. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. As educators and criminologists, we teach, research, write, and podcast about victims, offenders, and the issues that surround our criminal justice system. Amy and I have both worked in the field of criminal justice for 20 years, myself in law enforcement and Amy in the mental health field. In Campus Killings, we'll dive into some of the most shocking and tragic murders to happen on school grounds, and we'll provide our analysis on the cases we cover as both educators and trained criminologists. We'll discuss what went wrong and what could have been done differently to prevent the tragic outcome. Campus Killings is available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of Campus Killings.